Well, we have been in a series following the journey of Abraham, his, Abraham, uh, his journey of faith, but we've taken a break from that series for nearly a month uh, for uh, Christmas mini-series. So we return to the journey of Abraham today, and because it's been such a long time, I want to take a few minutes to remember what we have seen so far. So Abram was from Ur, and Ur was something like the capital city for worship, of the Sumerian god named Sin, S-I-N. It seems pretty clear that Abram and his whole family worshipped Sin, even naming some of their children after this moon god or the deities that surrounded him. So when God calls Abram, it's not just a call out of Ur, it's a call out of paganism. And when he calls Abram, when he speaks to Abram and calls him out of that darkness, he, he calls to him in the form of a covenant And in this covenant, God makes seven promises. Remember these promises? God promises to make from Abraham a great nation. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And those who bless you, I will bless. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So tremendous promises given to Abram. Promises that really touch the whole globe, touch us today thousands of years later on the other side of the planet. And in response, Abram is called to trust and obey God, to follow God and his leading. And I think as we've already begun to see, God's going to live up to his end of the covenant even when Abram fails. And Abram fails terribly at times. And God continually revives, restores, upholds his end of these promises. So Abram does leave Ur as God called him to do, but he's not the one who initiates that move. No, it is his father, Terah, that takes Abram and the whole clan all the way up to Abram. So Sarai, Abram's wife, comes. Lot, Abram's nephew, comes. They all go to Haran in northern Mesopotamia, which is not coincidentally... (laughs) Uh, a hub for worship of the moon god named Sin. So they are a pagan family through and through. It would seem that Abram's faith is hesitant at first, almost dormant, until his father dies. They live in Haran until his father dies. And Abram is just, is just hanging out there. But it's when his father dies that something changes in Abram. It's like his faith begins to awaken and he truly begins to follow God because at that point he leaves Haran and he goes where God has been leading him. He goes to this land of promise. He doesn't know where the land is just yet, but he knows that he needs to go. And so he goes. From Haran he travels south. And when he does this, Abram is 75. Sarai, his wife, is 65. Finally, they... They enter the land, they enter the promised land, the land of the Canaanites, going first to Shechem, which is like right at the heart of the promised land. And then Abram moves south, he camps between Bethel and Ai, and he builds an altar. He's been building altars in all of these locations, and whether he realizes realizes it or not, he's been consecrating the land as he goes, as he builds these altars, and he worships God. Well, then this famine comes. And it afflicts 
Abram and the whole family, desperate for food now, instead of trusting in God and in his provision, they go looking for provision in Egypt. And he leads his whole family down to Egypt. And there in Egypt, things go from bad, afflicted by famine, to far, far worse. You know, Abram is, you know, he's cunning. He understands the beauty of his wife. And he understands what powerful men will do to get what they want. And so he convinces his wife, Sarai, to lie. So while they're in Egypt, if anyone asks, they're going to tell them that they're just brother and sister. And they're going to leave out the part about them being married. Well, eventually this lands Sarai in the harem of Pharaoh. And and Abram, totally helpless to do anything about it. His wife has become a concubine to the king of Egypt. Now, despite Abram's faithless wandering in foreign land and his lying, God is still faithful. And God rescues Abram and Sarai from Pharaoh. And God isn't just rescuing them by the skin of their teeth. No, he He blesses them with such great wealth from Egypt. And they leave Egypt eventually with gold and silver and servants and livestock. The the things that mark wealth in those days. And this is right where we pick up the story of Abram. This is where we, we come to our passage today in Genesis chapter 13. We'll be studying from verses 3 to the end of the chapter. As we do, I want to unpack some spiritual components of a conflict that arises in this chapter. And I also want to offer, very briefly, three spiritual lessons for us in Genesis chapter 13. So let's read this chapter. Let's see what happens to Abram after Egypt. I'm going to start at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, and I will, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Father, we praise you again for your word, for how you speak to it out of us. You speak today. It would be only a fool who does not listen to the words of the Almighty God. So as we come before your word, open our ears, open our hearts, and I pray that you would use this very fallible mouth to correctly represent your word. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so you can see in Genesis 13, verses 3 through 4, that when Abram leaves Egypt, he retraces his steps almost exactly, going right back to where he began between Bethel and Ai. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, you saw that Abram already built an altar there, so likely he returns to the same place, the same altar, expressly to worship God there. He goes there to worship God. And this marks a return to the Lord. So when Abram left the promised land, going to Egypt, he also left the Lord. He failed to worship the Lord there. We saw that in that account of him in Egypt. Not once did he call upon the name of the Lord. Not once did he look to God for any help at all. Egypt was a time of backsliding, of wandering, of faltering. Now this return is renewal of his faith. Now he returns to the land, he returns to worship, he returns to the Lord. And when Abram turns from Egypt, he turns to the promised land. Really, he's expelled from Egypt. He's forced to leave. And he goes back to the promised land. And God graciously, generously, in spite of Abram, lavishes upon him great material wealth. And he leaves with with gold and silver and slaves, servants and livestock. Likewise, when Abram returns to the Lord in faith, when he comes back to God to worship him, God lavishes upon him greater measures of faith and all of the benefits that come with him, all of the spiritual blessings that come with faith. So it's not just a meager, beat up and bruised return to the Lord that Abraham is, is experiencing. His return to the Lord results in this dramatic increase of of spiritual, of spiritual wealth, of Abraham's faith. And it comes from God. He didn't produce it in and of himself. This blessing comes from God. And we're going to see how incredible this blessing of faith is. Look at verses 5 through 7 again with me. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Okay, so we're reminded very clearly here in verse 7, we can't lose sight of the fact that the Canaanites and the Perizzites own the land. Abram does not. It is not his possession, though he has been promised it. The Canaanites were the native population and were such a great uh, civilization that there's much for our archaeology to find today. 
of the Canaanites. The Perizzites, on the other hand, are a bit of a mystery. They're mentioned a number of times in the Bible, and scholars generally think that the Perizzites were a subset of Canaanites. The Canaanites, you know, it's all the people, but the Perizzites were the ones that didn't settle in the cities. Perhaps they were more rural, living in small collections of villages. Maybe they were living in the open country. Maybe they were herdsmen. These were the Perizzites. So the Canaanites, they occupied all of the promised land in cities and then in the open country as Perizzites. So they were traveling the countryside, much like Abram and Lot were traveling the countryside, which further exacerbates his situation. Back in chapter 12, this crisis emerged, which which drove Abram and family down to Egypt. A crisis of a severe famine, is what it said, a severe famine. Now there's another crisis that emerges. Not a severe famine, but a severe blessing. The blessing is so severe that a conflict emerges. So they have so much livestock. Think, think cattle and sheep and goats that the servants of Abram and Lot begin to quarrel with one another. Likely this is happening when all these sheep are funneling into watering holes. All the goats and all the cattle are funneling into watering holes and they're probably fighting for rights. Who gets, who gets the resources? Notice that that conflict is a direct result of covenant with Abram, of God's covenant with Abram. God said, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. These things are happening. And it's problematic. So God blesses Abram and Lot by association so severely that the land cannot contain the blessing. And this is a foreshadowing of the biblical ark. Do you realize that? The covenant blessings that start in Abram and are are realized more fully, more completely in Christ, these covenant blessings will so overflow that they will spill out into all the surrounding lands, into all the world. God blesses so severely that it cannot be contained. But it's like your heart being filled with rivers of living water that are meant to spill out and flood the land. Look at verses 8 and 9 now. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So conflict, apparently, hadn't remained just with the herdsmen. There's this really subtle implication in the text that there's a wedge driven between Abram and Lot themselves. There's a conflict between the two of them, not just their servants. Lot's upset with Abram. And this theme begins to emerge. Not just in Genesis 13, in all of Lot's life, Lot is ungrateful. He's blessed because of God's covenant with Abram. Not because of anything that he has done, not at all. It's because of Abram that he has so much wealth. And yet it would seem he becomes angry and dissatisfied with Abram. And this conflict gives rise to an incredible demonstration of faith. It is stunning what Abram does here. Demonstration 
of how far he has come since Egypt. So as I've already mentioned, we've seen it. Lot is Abram's nephew. So in this culture, it means that Lot was Abram's inferior. Abram had every right to expel Lot and say, if this is a problem for you, then, then you can go. You know, we don't, I don't need to work out any compromise. Just get out of here. And the stuff that's mine, I'm going to keep it. He had every right to do this to Lot as his inferior. And after all, this land was his land. It was promised to him. It was, Lot had no claim on it. And yet, greatly valuing the bonds of family, desiring peace, Abraham does this astonishing thing, and he asks a rhetorical question. You see that? Is not the whole land before you? Look at all of it. And he offers Lot whatever portion he wants. Amazingly, Abram is treating Lot as his equal. He has elevated Lot to the position of his equal, which itself is an incredible act of grace. In a culture dominated by power, this never happens. And Abram does it for Lot, giving Lot a relational position he did not deserve. And then, on top of that, he offers Lot the promised land, or at least a very significant portion of the promised land. He's going to give the promised land to his ungrateful nephew. Whatever Lot decides, Abram will submit to. Not only has he elevated Lot to be his equal, he lowers himself now to a subordinate position, submitting to whatever Lot decides. Abram does not count equality a thing to be grasped. Does that sound familiar? Remind you of someone? Philippians. Turn over there. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." That is an amazing text. And God bends all creation to his son, to bow before his son, because he died. Because he, he humbled himself, took on the form of a man, crucified, so that sins can be forgiven. 
and we could glory in the grace of our God. This great reality, which really all creation is about, that great gospel reality, that enormous, massive, so high reality is being given to us in this passage so that we would consider others more significant than ourselves. So that we would be humble. Like Abram is with Lot. Not counting equality a thing to be grasped, but considering Lot more significant than himself. Astonishingly, though Lot is ungrateful and greedy, he chooses not to grasp onto his rights, but he lets them go. Abram foreshadows Jesus. We see it again and again and again. And what Abram models right here, as we see in Philippians 2, is to be demonstrated between us. We are to treat each other the same way. It's an incredible demonstration of faith on Abram's part. But because, because Abram believes in God's promises, or Jesus knew that once he lowered himself all the way down, even to death on a cross, a criminal's cross, that God would raise him up so that one day every knee would bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Abram is, is trusting in the Lord, and he lowers himself potentially giving up the promised land because he knows that that promise is his, that the land in some way, somehow will be his, that descendants more numerous than the dust of the earth will somehow, some way, still be his. He trusts in the Lord. Abram doesn't possess the land, but he offers it to Lot because he's trusting in God's word. God's unfailing words. What God says, he knows he will do. And, and it's astonishing because what Abram offers Lot, he knows it's something that's going to outlast both of them. Their, their descendants and the generations and generations that come from them will possess the land. That's what he's offering to Lot, not just the thing right now in front of him. Secondly, Abraham trusts God that whatever Lot chooses, God's still going to provide he knows that no matter what the world takes, God's provisions continue to abound with blessing. And him coming out of Egypt, isn't that a demonstration of it? No matter what the world takes, God is going to bless. And it might not look like we think it should look. But God blesses in ways that he knows are best. So when Abram makes this offer to Lot, he demonstrates tremendous faith in God's word and God's provision. And here we're seeing contrasts being set up. First, the contrast of Abram before and after Egypt. Before when famine struck, he trusts neither in the Lord nor in his provision, so he goes to Egypt looking for help. But now, Abram has learned, and his faith has grown, and he's trusting in God, he's worshiping God. Then there's the contrast between Abram and Lot. Abram has his chosen portion already. Right? It's whatever Lot isn't going to take. That's the portion he'll accept, trusting that whatever's left will be blessed by the Lord. Abram chooses by faith, right? Whatever's left, I know God will bless it. He's choosing by faith. Lot, on the other hand, in contrast, chooses very differently. Look at verses 10 through 13 now. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Oh, I skipped a... (laughs) Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abram and Lot, they're standing on some height, overlooking Canaan, and they can see into the Jordan Valley. Likely they're looking north as this happens. And you know what could have happened here? Lot could have chosen not to leave. Isn't there always a way of peace? Stay with Abram to create a path that works for both parties and their herdsmen. Surely the way of family is to stay together, not to separate. To to undertake sometimes very difficult work of peacemaking. Of finding love when there's been divisiveness. But instead, when this is placed before Lot, he is pricked by greed and he makes a fateful decision. And the words of verse 10 are critical. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. He saw, it looked good, so he took. What's that remind you of? Look how the garden of the Lord is mentioned there also in verse 10. That's Eden. No coincidence that the author of Genesis is echoing Eden because a disastrous choice was made there also. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and ate. And all the world came crashing down. Scripture bursts with this theme all over. When we live by sight, desiring the things that we can see and touch, we will die. It is a lesser life and it can only taste temporary pleasures. It does not last. And yet we are hardwired to live in a shallow and immediate kind of way. Meanwhile, we're quick to neglect pleasures that are a slow burn and a hard build, pleasures that last for all eternity, pleasures like love and peace and joy and righteousness, spiritual pleasures, all found and only truly found in relationship with God. In this theme, we see it flowing all the way into the New Testament, the Our Lives, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This verse is often used, and rightly, in association with suffering. Because those sufferings are transient. But the positive is true as well. The pleasures here are just as transient and are passing away. So we must not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So you've probably heard that a lot of times in church. And you might think, 
that we Christians are just to fix our eyes on heavenly things and live in that distant future place today. Those things are for then, not for now. They don't touch us. They don't affect us. That's a half-truth. And you know, Eve took that fruit because of a half-truth. We are to fix our eyes on heavenly things. But we are expected, we, we are to expect that when we fix our eyes on those heavenly things, they begin to rain down on this land and begin to fill these hearts, begin to water this earth. The joys, the pleasures of heaven water this earth so that love and joy and peace and righteousness and the glories of heaven begin to fill the earth so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. It is supposed to go from there to here by faith because we're looking not at the things we can grasp now but at the greater things that come to us now. It's partial now, for sure. It is measured, but it is increasing and will continue to increase from one degree of glory to another until the day at the resurrection when heaven and earth are fully, completely united. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And as we look, they appear. Now that truth, which we cannot see, can be seen as Abram chooses faith and Lot chooses sight. Verse 10, there are these three foreboding remarks of Lot's decision for the Jordan Valley. It was like Eden, which we've already reviewed. Decisions there were disastrous. Two, it was like Egypt. Abram's recent decisions in Egypt were disastrous. And then three, there's a comment to remind us that, that God will destroy Sodom and the surrounding area, that there will be disasters within the Jordan Valley. So Lot chooses the Jordan Valley, nestled in, in which Sodom is nestled. I like this image here. Here's the Dead Sea. You can see the Jordan Valley running north-south here, Sea of Galilee way up in the north. Um, the Sea of Galilee used to come all the way down here, but this is a picture from today where it is receded. Now it's used for collecting salt and other minerals. But at any rate, Lot and Abram are somewhere up here overlooking Canaan, on some height overlooking Canaan and the Jordan Valley. Right? And you can see, best guess, it's not for sure, but best guess is Sodom was located in this area, Here's maybe Gomorrah, Zoar, which we read in the text, and a few other cities uh, associated with Sodom, all in this area, that will be destroyed. So they're, over, they're in the heights overlooking the Jordan Valley. And just a quick parenthesis here. When Jesus is in Jericho, in places like Jericho that are low down, right? Jericho is in the Jordan Valley. It says they go up to Jerusalem, but they're actually traveling south, which is foreign to us. You wouldn't say, I go up to Pennsylvania, you would go up to the Adirondacks or up to Canada. But up literally means elevation for, for the Jews up to Jerusalem, to 2,500 feet. So close that parentheses. So they're overlooking the Jordan Valley. And they can see 
They can see a huge portion of it, almost from sea to sea. Verse 13, it says that the sins of Sodom, and it really means the sins of all of those cities surrounding Sodom, were exceedingly great. Today I'm not going to get too much into what those sins are. We're going we're to look at that more closely in chapter 18. But you can see Lot moves his tent, it says, to the outskirts of Sodom. He goes all the way down into the valley near, near Sodom, and he sets up his tent there. Do you know what this means? Look, this marks one of the boundaries of the promised land. Lot left it. Lot left the promised land. He's choosing to separate himself from the land. He's choosing to separate himself from Abram, the covenant bearer, the mediator of blessing. Ultimately, Lot is choosing to separate himself from God. From covenant. And in the next chapter, we're going to see consequences that immediately begin to befall him. And the blessings that he had quickly begin to erode. And by the end of the story of Lot, he's living in caves with nothing. Look at verse 14 now. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you. For for the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. I just have this picture in my mind of Abram standing on one of those heights, overlooking the land, and, and he sees in the distance Lot and his, his whole company trailing off, feeling rather dejected, I would think. But then speaks the God of all comfort, and he lifts Abram's downcast eyes. And now it's Abram's turn to look. And in contrast to Lot, Abram doesn't look with greed. He doesn't look to take. He looks out of obedience because God told him to look. And for the second time, God tells him that all he can see is his. He told him this back in Shechem. All that he can see is his. The reassurance of promise, God is affirming Abram, affirming the promises, even blessing Abram for the way that he he humbly lowered himself and generously dealt with Lot. It's like an affirmation of the faith that Abram has just demonstrated. And this time, in this reaffirmation of the covenant, this time God links the land with the promised descendants. Now they are a package, right? It's, it's obvious and inextricable. They come together, the land and the descendants. So he uses the dust of the land to number his descendants. As far as Abram can see, as far as he can count, this land will be filled with his offspring. But like God blessed him already, that blessing is going to be so severe, it's going to spill out of the land. It's going to go everywhere. In verse 17, God told Abram to walk the breadth of the land. So in the ancient world, kings often traversed newly conquered land. There's a lot of stories in antiquity of this. Something that just became theirs, they would walk the breadth of it 
to show legal possession of it. In fact, even Joshua and the Israelites marching around Jericho was them showing their possession of it. But Abram's walk is a walk of faith. For Abram, as I have said, actually owns none of the land, and his wife remains barren. God's promises might appear to him, to many, like empty, hollow commands, words that mean nothing. For those who walk by sight, God's call to obedience seems like foolish futility. Why are you doing this? But for those who walk by faith, even without possessing the promises, already they feel the growing and eternal weight of glory upon them now. Because walking by faith, you begin to feel heaven now. At the end of Abram's walk, he settles in the south. Verse 18, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oak of Mamre, which are at Hebron, And there he built an altar to the Lord. At over 3,000 feet, Hebron is the highest city in what would later be called Judah. And as of today, today, Hebron has been occupied continuously for over 6,000 years. It's an ancient city. The Oaks of Mamre uh, mentioned here are about two miles to the north of Hebron. So in later chapters, we're going to see that this location becomes very important uh, to Abram. Eventually, he will buy a little plot of land, and he will bury his wife there, and he will be buried there. By the time he does die, it will be the only plot of land that he legally possesses in all the promised land, a gravesite. And again, we are reminded, we will be reminded when we get there, that God is a God of resurrection. Hebron will go on to play a significant role in Israel's history. It's going to be given to Caleb as a possession. Faithful Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, will be given to Caleb as a possession. And later, Hebron's citizens will be the very first in all Israel to acknowledge David as king. In this place, Abram builds another altar. Again, Abram worships God, God who does not fail to keep his word and to keep his promises, and he knows that his provisions will satisfy, and Abram worships this good God. Okay, briefly, three spiritual lessons from this text from chapter 13. Two we've already seen, one I have, I have left for now. First spiritual lesson, like Abram, we are to be peacemakers, even if we are humbled, and even if it costs us. Romans 12, 20 and 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. And of course, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And Jesus is the ultimate example. Who makes peace between us and God. And he makes it in the most humbling, shameful, well, what appeared shameful kind of way, but filled with glory through a cross. So Abram, 
humbled himself at great cost to make peace with God, as Jesus has done to make peace between us and God. And now I must ask, is there a conflict between any of us here in this room? Do you know conflict? You who are brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe, maybe somebody outside of this room that you have a conflict with, are you willing to let go of your rights? Are you willing to let go of being right for the sake of peace? Are you willing to intentionally diminish, to be humbled for the success and the elevation of others? That you go down and they go up even if they seem to you to be greedy and ungrateful. Imagine what it would look like. Imagine what this, this world, this society would look like if people did this for one another, considering others more significant as themselves, being so committed to peacemaking that they're willing to pay the price. I think it would be glorious. I think it would look like heaven on earth. The second spiritual lesson, like Abram, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. A lesson that seems to me to be so clear from Genesis chapter 13. I I hardly need to say more about it, yet I am a preacher. All All the things of this world, just chasing pleasure, chasing significance, Chasing these things that pass away. And anyone who chased these things at any point in their life knows that they dry up. They do not last. It's like chasing the wind. Vanity, vanity. As much as you feast upon them, they leave you gnawingly empty. So we in Christ are to turn away from these foolish pursuits to the things that last, to the things that will endure forever. And I love, so love Paul's words. I have been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't live by sight, I live by faith. Why? Because Christ loved me and he gave himself for me. So count me as crucified. Count me as dead, that old self. Do you know what? I I can't see Christ crucified, and I can't see Jesus living inside of me in any material, physical kind of way, but I believe it. And I will live this life by faith because I know he loved me and he gave himself for me. So I don't need to chase as tempting as it might be, And as much as I might fail, I don't need to chase fleeting pleasures. Because if Christ gave me himself, as Galatians 2.20 says, will he not also give me, will not God also give me all things with him? Which is what Roman 8 says. If you get Christ, you get everything. The third lesson that we can glean from Genesis 13. As Abram understood Paradise is not found through possession. This relates to the last point, but it's kind of like it's inverse. You can create for yourself the most ideal environment, and it's safe and tranquil and comfortable, and it's well-watered with all the things that you could want. 
And still sin slithers its way in and conflicts come. Like John Calvin writes, Lot fancied he was dwelling in paradise, but he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Sodom will become a picture of hell in Scripture. So let us not be like Lot, who left covenant with God for a more comfortable lifestyle. And you know, later, Lot is still counted as righteous. So let's put this into modern terms. It's like a Christian... It's like a Christian who you can't really tell is a Christian because they live like the world lives and they live comfortably in the things of the world. They choose to ally themselves with the things of the world and their relationship with Christ seems diminished, seems to be eclipsed or outshined by the things of the world. And going all the way, all the way, it would be like selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. No, we cannot buy or build, or find anything that provides pleasure or good or satisfaction outside of God, outside of relationship with God. Nothing of that sort lasts without God. And so we must surrender our hearts to him to find peace and love and joy and righteousness, to to find that he will fill the desires of our heart. And so we come to Christ He who bled to establish an eternal covenant. And in him we find rest for our souls. In him we find satisfaction. He is the better Abram. And we cannot allow our gaze to fall from him, from his face, to that of Sodom's. So brothers and sisters, let us learn from Abram and Lot. And humble ourselves. And walk by faith. And seek paradise in relationship to Christ. And the things not seen, the things that are coming and are increasing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and how you continue to speak into our hearts. And and as you speak, you bring change, you bring life, you bring peace and joy and even glory today streaming into this earth. Future glory streaming into into today. We praise you for that. May it happen. May it bear fruit as we have heard your word this morning. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.